I'm Satya doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. We'll start, as always, with lighting a candle with all of you. The lighting of the candle, I think, started as a form of ritual and and joining in community. And it also seems to consistently, for me, just be about beginning with the spirit of the times and needing to mark, you know, I guess pain and suffering. I mean, I want to say it's also the wins, but it really is the pain and suffering. And this week, every single week, it's something new. And every single week, it's overlapping. I don't remember all of the tragedies that unfolded this week. There's the hurricane in Louisiana that devastated countless communities, the double homicide in different respects in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is layers and layers of trauma and political and racial violence and confusion, um, which I'm not going to open up right now. We had a shooting last night in Portland with a parade of Trump supporters in their trucks coming into town and attempting to sort of offer a counter perspective to the nights of uh, Antifa protests and BLM protests going on in Portland. I'm also not going to dive into that because it's just too muddy and I don't know enough of everything that happened. I just woke up to it myself, but that happened in our own town, blocks from my uh, former office uh, where I've spent years and years and years, right? All of us, it's right downtown. And then the fires in California are still raging and affecting the lives and also air for thousands of miles around. And the overlapping bit of that, which I can't help but just think of, which is that those fires are also worse and worse because much of California's fires are fought by the prison population who now are so overwhelmed with COVID that they can't be out fighting fires for dollars a day. So here we have America in all of our overlapping tragedies and lack of leadership and lack of compassion. And as always, we find our way into these topics through our conversation, but it might be a little circuitous today. Today's chapter in many respects is about the union of the opposites in my mind. And, and it's about a lot of things. It's, it's sort of a complicated chapter in that it doesn't have much of a linearity to it. So we'll find our way, but we're working with Knox Quarta today, which is the fourth night, and it's the last of this series of four chapters that we've uh, explored. And I'm going to dive in kind of in the middle, and then we're going to move back to Carol to start us off at the beginning with the story. But I'll pause and just check in with Carol. Of all of these tragedies and everything I just opened up, is there anything you want to speak to before we kick things off? Just in your in the recitation of 
the difficulties amidst which we find ourselves, this particular chapter is extremely relevant, especially the encapsulation of the Parsifal story inside it. Because healing a broken land because the ruler is out of relationship, it's not only does the Parsifal story, not just the way Wagner enunciated it, but, but really what the whole story is, and where we find ourselves, again, is incredibly consummate. That Jung's appetite and his search for wholeness and his understanding of how the schisms inside himself replicated into the world creates war and difficulty. He's really wrestling with that in this chapter. Again, it isn't that he hasn't been wrestling with it, but it's particularly relevant to this week. And what, what happens in a country where people are out of relationship with the land? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Bringing us back to the wasteland, I think, is so poignant and really deeply resonates for me, is how do we find ourselves, how do we get ourselves out of the wasteland? And that that is what the Red Book is. That is why I stay with it. It's why we're doing this salon series, right? So so thank you for, for setting us up in that way. How do we get ourselves out of the wasteland? So let's, Carol, on that note, why don't we actually start at the very, very beginning? You want to just read the first page for us and just set us up, and then I'll dive into the... Yeah, because you, what you have to say about uh, about the alignment of self, and I think that that's really important. So, but we'll we'll begin... Knox Corda on page 361. I hear the roaring of the morning wind which comes over the mountains. The night is overcome when all my life was subject to eternal confusion and stretched out between the poles of fire. My soul speaks to me in a bright voice. The door should be lifted off its hinges to provide a free passage between here and there, between yes and no, between above and below, between left and right. Airy passages should be built between all opposed things. Light, smooth streets should lead from one pole to the other. Scales should be set up whose pointer sways gently. A flame should burn that cannot be blown out by the wind. A stream should flow to its deepest goal. The herds of wild animals should move to their feeding grounds along their old game paths. Life should proceed from birth to death, from death to birth, unbroken like the path of the sun. Everything should proceed on this path. So after one night in which he turned to the left and another night in which he turned to the right, we are uh, here in the middle and we're exploring the union of the opposites. So I'm going to start then with this somewhat cryptic paragraph at the end of 370 and moving into 371. I am he, the nameless one, who does not know himself and whose name is concealed even from himself. I have no name since I have not yet existed, but have only just become. To myself, I am an Anabaptist and a stranger. I, who am I, am not it, but I, who will be I before me and after me, am it. In that I abased myself, I elevated myself as another. In that I accepted myself, I divided myself into two, and in that I united myself with myself. I became the smaller part of myself. I am this in my consciousness. However, I am thus in my consciousness as if I were also separated from it. I am not in my second and greater state 
as if I were this second and greater one myself, but I am always in ordinary consciousness, yet so separate and distinct from it as if I were in my second and greater state, but without the consciousness of really being it. I have even become smaller and poorer, but precisely because of my smallness, I can be conscious of the nearness of the great. So I think straight back to Jung setting up the number one and number two personality that he describes in his, in his memoir. And we're going to explore, I think, Atma Victu, which is this image that comes up throughout this section, this sort of dragony, serpenty image. And Jung is exploring the relationship between his two personalities. He's exploring the dynamic between the ego and the self. So what I hear in this section is, is the idea of the ego self-axis, which is a term that came after Jung. But this feeling, part of what I feel in this, and this is my own exploration of it, right, is the relationship between the spine and the nervous system of the spine and the embodiment, the vagus nerve, which we're all learning more about. I want to dedicate a couple years to learning about uh, the way this is connected to our brains, the way the left and right hemispheres are connected, the union of the opposites of the corpus callosum. But here we have this sort of sense of this embodied primal limbic system as related to the ego self or the, the consciousness. And so in this section, I hear Jung doing this deep exploration of how these sides of himself have developed into relationship. And that there's a quality of some culmination. It doesn't quite feel like a culmination in the way this chapter is laid out. But I think there is a profound culmination of Jung's ego developing a capacity to defer to the collective unconscious or to soul or to the self with a capital S without being consumed by it. So there is this dialogue. There's this conversation between the two of them. So the, e the idea of the ego self-axis, just briefly, is that over time, over the development of consciousness, this is really largely Eric Neumann's work, again, building off of Jung's work with some support from Edward Edinger and others. But the idea of the ego self-axis is that we all develop the capacity for consciousness out of a deep childhood immersion in the collective unconscious, through the hero's journey, this is Parsifal again, and what Jung's doing in the Red Book, through the hero's journey of allowing the ego that, you know, it's the death of the hero, that the ego defers, is killed in its original childhood state, and learns then over time to come back to life, but not as separate from the unconscious, but in relationship to the unconscious. And so this last line on 371, that last line I just read, I have even become smaller and poorer, but precisely because of my smallness, I can be conscious of the nearness of the great. There's something so poignant in that and so beautiful around the relativization of his ego consciousness now. It's not this toxic masculine consciousness. It's not what we're all raised to kind of be inflated or, or also to be small and crumbly and not capable of seeing outside of itself. So I'll pause there. Carol, what else comes to you around this? Well, this, this image, you know, in the footnote that, that, uh, about this image, which is image uh, 117 in the Red Book, 
that to the left of the page is this many-legged, dragon-tailed, serpent-tongued figure with its mouth wide open, getting ready to eat the sun. And a young robed man is bowing down before it. And then that's on the left-hand side of the image. To the right is a very, is a small child from an earlier uh, image, Telesphorus, bowing down to a tiger. They're really kundalini images of the human in, in the presence of some very powerful primordial force at work in us. And I was especially, like you, I love this image of the dragon getting ready to eat the sun. And, and Jung says, the dragon wants to eat the sun and the youth beseeches him not to, but he eats it nevertheless. And I was thinking about this in relationship to the horoscope. Again, keeping in mind Edinger's distinction between signs and symbols, that signs are abstractions and that symbols are mysterious and alive. And that the, sim that, that the sun symbolizes centrality and force and vitality and heat and light and stability and gravity and uh, the, the self. The, so here we have this primordial figure eating, eating all of this. I was very struck um, by, in this whole chapter by appetites, that it's happening in the, the cook's kitchen. He's having this conversation in the librarian. The librarian has a cook, and that's where he finds Thomas Akempis, and it's where he has the incubation dream, is in the kitchen. So this idea of having to eat the sun, of having to swallow something, to start something, to make something happen, mm -hmm. to initiate the process seems very, very significant to me. But it's also terrifying, and it's a kind of surrender too. And But it's the beginning of a kind of metabolism. Well, and again, I think of the vagus nerve, which I am still just learning about at the very beginning, but the relationship between the gut and the brain, right? Yeah. And so these sort of two different brains and how right here we're seeing the relationship between the cook and the librarian, which are another image of Salome and Elijah showing up where the cook says, I've been with the librarian for a very long time. I am his, I am his cook, right? So there's this relationship between those two again. I wonder, Anne, if you want to just speak, we spoke a little bit about the translation that shows up around that one image, image 117, and maybe I'll just read the paragraph before it and you can speak a little bit to, to this. Okay, so so this is on 366. So the paragraph around image 117 with Atmavictu and the sun and the bowing, the tiger and the child. When the God enters my life, I return to my poverty for the sake of the God. I accept the burden of poverty and bear all my ugliness and ridiculousness and also everything reprehensible in me. I thus relieve the God of all the confusion and absurdity that would befall him if I did not accept it. With this, I prepare the way for the God's doing. What should happen? Has the darkest abyss been emptied and exhausted or, or what stands and waits down there impending and red hot? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. So I'll foolishly give an answer, um, and it's not an answer. What I answered, you'd asked me about gender and what it was like in the German, and I could not just, and I just simply said, this chapter is all shape-shifting. Yeah. Start, yeah. start to finish. So very comfortably, one says, 
her about the serpent and then the next moment says he but it's predominantly he and in the German I couldn't even find any reference there with Amvictu to Atmavictu to uh, she but as I kept rereading through this I did one interesting thing I went back to the memoirs and I reread in his childhood mm-hmm. the power it's so worth rereading the power of his love and his faith, how difficult it was for him to really see the moment where God dropped the turd on the cathedral. Mm -hmm. You know, the the, the profundity of that experience as a child. Mm -hmm. And and so what I was hearing in here, first I thought with all the shape-shifting, you know, it's a little bit like Maya in Buddhism, but it's not really very Buddhist. And then I kept thinking of, in that wonderful phrase, I, who I am, am not it. I kept thinking of the incredible um, Hindu sage, Ramana Maharshi's, whose principal discipline, he never, he would never be a guru, anything like that, but his principal way of spiritual practice was to ask the question again and again, who am I? Who am I? until you began to hear from deep within uh, who I am that's deeper than my ordinary consciousness. Mm-hmm. So you sort of go through that process, stripping away all the, in a way, all the egoic answers which we come up with. And so that was what it reminded me. So I loved Jung saying, and I'll end here, I am always an ordinary consciousness yet so separate and distinct from it Mm -hmm. as if I were my second and greater state. And I hear not only the self as his second personality, but it's truly that which Ramana was talking about, the I am which overarches both personalities. As if I were my second and greater state without the consciousness of really being it. And I said to you, how much I appreciate that, because that's what I feel all the time, Mm -hmm. that it would be great if I could abide in that second and greater state. I'd love it. I've been trying for decades, but forget it. (laughs) Anyway, the truth is where I abide is ordinary consciousness. And I am aware that I am who I am, and I'm not it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what whole of this whole it's it's the depth in a way of Atma Viktu in a way, the breath of life. Mm-hmm. I am it and I'm not it. Yeah. And that's the that's the twin serpents right there. Yeah. You know, that's that's the twinning path right there. Yeah, it's also that the gold which the serpent swallows, that's that oh. I am that I need not lose. Even yeah. when they strip me open and tear me apart, that's the one thing that I absolutely need to hold on to. And you, you make me think in all this of something that I, we've spoken about in other seminars and, and I think about a lot, but that people are born into this world, I think, in two different ways. You know, some of us don't want to be here and want to be part of the oneness and kind of struggle to ever really properly engage with the spirit of the times and feel related to the spirit of the depths you know, and others don't understand the spirit of the depths at all and are, and are comfortable, but maybe 
uh, over time feel empty in just the spirit of the times. Mm -hmm. And that is what Jung is sorting through here, right? I mean, in my mind, he was born as a person who really didn't understand being in this singular world, but he over time developed relationship to that and then went all the way back to the spirit of the times to find union again between the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depth. So this is ego, self. It's all of these union of opposites. Carol, tell us what you've pulled up here. Well, the reason I pulled it up is we, we, we are hearing the particle in the wave, yes? Yes, absolutely. We're, we're you know, self, not self, ground, ground of being, being, ground of being, being. And this is so much what you, you know, when we first started this, what we're looking at here in this horoscope is in the center circle is Jung's natal horoscope. And in the, the field that's indicated, there are parts of it that I have indicated in orange that, that struck me as arenas of Jung's nature and his personal development, that his, his origin story, if you will. But what's indicated in yellow around him is this night of Knox Quarter, the fourth night, January 19th, 1914, and when we first started this, in, in the astrological model, these divisions of the circle are, we could say, human geographies. They're places where our story is going to ground itself and grow and develop. And some of these places are intensely personal and private, the houses of the lower hemisphere of the horoscope. And some of the places of our development are quite public but they are all the spirit of the times. It's where we are going to navigate and negotiate this world of gravity and, and time. In the horoscope, this place, the 12th house, is timeless. It's the infinite. It's the always becoming. It's the, what Jung came to call the collective unconscious. So when we first started, if we go back and look at the first horoscope of, of the, our, the, our beginning, this planet, Jupiter, which is astrology's is other mythological name was Zeus. At the very beginning of this, this energy had just knocked on the door of Jung's depths, had just knocked on the door of his sense of the infinite. He was otherwise really preoccupied with his daily life and with the getting and spending and the reputation with Freud and being married and having children and being a, a deeply spiritual and religious person. But the, that time itself knocked on the door and said, there's another place to be, come here. So with every chart that we've done since we started back there, this has become a gathering place for Jung's development. His, it, he is deepening with every night, with every encounter, a relationship with always becoming the infinite and the characters that live, Atma Victu, Salome, Elijah, Philemon, the, uh, the, the red man, the devil, the, the solitary, the anchorite, all of these encounters he's been encountering here. And at the same time, it's really educating him and, and educating the world. This symbol, Neptune, is very much about what you and Anne have just been talking about, that there is the self and the not-self. There's the figure and there's the field. And that they're in a constant, vital, dynamic relationship with each other. 
And so Jung, at this point in his life, again, still what this, what is called the Grand Cardinal Cross, the times and his nature are combining to bring him into this, not only these polarities, which he describes as being between two poles of the fire and of being suspended over something, but, but from an astrological point of view, it's just, he's, it's such a literal picture of his having to, that he can't, he can't leave it. It's not going to leave him alone. And what we will see, of course, when we get to the end of the magician is it's done. Mm -hmm. The encounter, the introduction, the surfacing of it. It's not like, oh, well, it came and it went. And that's the end of that. It's like this place in me, this time in me woke me up to something that I'm never going to be the same. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who, you know, we all have this place in us. We have the quotidian and then we have the infinite and that the Newtonian and the quantum worlds meet in us. And this, not a polarity or a division, but how the figure field relationship, the self, not self relationship, something is happening for him that will change everything for him. And that then moves forward, of course, into the field of his success, clinical writing, papers, lectures, working with patients, you know, but anybody who goes through, a time like this will be forever changed. You can't ever look at the world the same way. I, one of my favorite ways to think about it is when Frodo comes home after he's thrown the ring in the lava and he and Sam and Mary and Pippin, they go back to the Shire and they all resume their lives and he can't mm -hmm. because he's, he's now he has a wholeness and a, a, a look at the world that, that means he, he can't just rest in ordinary consciousness anymore. That stood out to me quite a bit in this chapter in, in really feeling how Jung is collecting all of these images that are showing up from the collective unconscious. And then, as we know, is just set up for the next many decades of trying to understand these symbols. But he was collecting what was showing up from the fountain, from the lava. And he, uh, he could not go back to the way things were. Um, and he had his work cut out for him. And the reason that he was so deeply afraid that he was becoming schizophrenic was because, again, it's all about the interplay between the ego self-axis. If the ego can tolerate what's coming up from the collective unconscious, that it doesn't get sunk by it and it doesn't become schizophrenic. But yeah. if, if it gets sunk by the water or the lava and, and is too fragmented or not large enough, if the boat isn't big enough to hold the whale that gets hooked on the line, it gets sunk. And mm -hmm. so you can feel Jung, I think, quite a bit in this chapter, just collecting all the images. It shows up a lot in the footnotes as well. And then just trying to make sense of them for years and years and years from that point forward. And the footnote and I mean, there were quite a number, but for me, I was really struck in this by, I think the last footnote, um, footnote 232, which is also on Atma Victu. And I'm not going to read any of it because it's just so massive, but just to, for folks, if they want to spend a little time there, it's just the deep wrestling with all of these figures and what, what they turn into all the different ways that they're transforming. And that for Jung, Atma Victu, this very primal creature becomes his image of God in, in various ways, but then also in Philemon, in which we're going to see pretty soon in the book. Carol, there's so much we had spoken about exploring. Yeah, this is the Atma Victu statue that's in Jung's garden. 
Yes, he carved this. I, I was so, so struck by this. I think, you know, here's he, I think he commissioned it, Carol. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure that I'm pretty sure that he's given credit for carving it, but I'm pretty sure just for what okay. it's worth, he actually commissioned it, is my memory. But go ahead. Well, here we have the segmentation and the many legs, and never mind the sort of uh, almost golem-like head. You know, it's, it's clearly that, that he planted it in his garden. Here it is covered with moss and Mm -hmm. All of these arms and legs gathering around itself. I, I was quite moved by that. You know, when I when I started looking more at Atma Victu and uh, and and began exploring, there are several uh, Im images of this on the web. And um, yeah, and it looks like Philemon a bit as well. It's a Philemon head on this creature's body. This creature's and, body. Yeah, yeah and that Philemon is often represented with wings, which again we're going to see coming up in the next chapters. His god image, his sort of um, higher mind. Um, but this is a grounding quality of it in Jung's garden. And last thing I'll say on this is that it also really speaks back to one of the other famous stories of Jung's childhood of carving this creature. Mannequin. Yeah, the little mannequin. I mean, it has different names, right? But this tiny little creature in wood and you can feel him and, and it's so, so, so important to him. And then he puts it in, I think, like a matchbox or some, some kind of little box and then hides it up in the rafters in his childhood home. And it's such a deep ritual of honoring that he has as a child. And that, again, sort of prefigures this larger relationship to Philemon and Atmet Victu later in his mm -hmm. life. So that's a lot of in his memoir, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, as well as I think in, in many of the footnotes and references here. Carol, shall we try to, we've, shall we try to circle back and Diversifying. first of all a bit? It's not just Jung's journey, it's, it's everybody's journey not only to individuation and consciousness, but to participation in the world through compassion and surrender, which is really what the Parsifal story is about. His soul has said the roaring of the morning wind and his soul speaks to me in a bright voice. And he comes to in the kitchen. I'll read a little bit about this to set it up. I open my eyes. The fat cook is standing before me. You're a sound sleeper, I must say, she says. You've slept for more than an hour. He says, really? Have I slept? I must have dreamed. What a dreadful play. Did I fall asleep in this kitchen? Is this really the realm of mothers? Have a glass of water. You're still thoroughly drowsy. Yes, this sleep can make one drunk. Where's my Thomas? There it lies, open at the 21st chapter, my soul in everything, and yet beyond everything, you must find your rest in the Lord, for he is the eternal rest of the saints. I read this sentence aloud. Is not every word followed by a question mark? The cook says to him, if you fell asleep with this sentence, you must really have had a beautiful dream. He says, I certainly dreamed, and I will think about the dream. Incidentally, can you tell me whose cook you are? She says, I'm the librarian's. He loves good cooking, and I have been with him for many years. Oh, he says, I had no idea the librarian had such a cook. Yes, she says, you must know that he's a gourmet. Farewell, Madam Cook, and thank you for the accommodation. And she says, you're most welcome, and the pleasure was entirely mine. Then he encounters the librarian, and he, he, they're having a chat. He talks about meeting the cook. And Jung says, allow me an indiscreet question. Have you ever had an incubation sleep in the, your kitchen? <laughs> and the librarian says, no, I've never entertained such a strange idea. So following this conversation, the incubation dream, 
And the idea of, of the incubation dream in which the medicine presents itself in a series of images, he imagines the magic garden of Klingsor uh, from the story of Parsifal. And for those of you who are Wagnerian fans, there's Wagner's take and, and the reference in the Red Book to the Parsifal story about the young hero who is going to save the wounded country and the wounded king through his naivete and his redemption and finding of the grail and healing the land through healing the wound of the king and restoring the land to health is a little reductive. And I, I went back and I think if the, for those of you who are really get more interested in this myth, this book, The Snowy Tower, Parzival and the Wet Black Branch of Language by Martin Shaw is a quite remarkable understanding of the Parzival myth from the point of view of the, an individual's journey to co connection and compassion and collective consciousness as well as personal individuation. So I wrote out this um, brief synopsis because Jung starts out this journey not knowing who he is. Parsifal begins his life not knowing who he is. His mother, Herzeloida, the white queen, has fallen deeply in love with a grand knight in the, in the court of, of northern England, has married, is pregnant with Parsifal, and the husband, the knight, goes off on the crusades to Iraq and Iran and is killed there. And the mother, in her grief, retreats with her help to the forest, where she cuts herself and her child off from all living things. She does not want her son to know who he is. She does not want him to know that his father was a great knight. She doesn't want him to know life. And, and there's, there's parts of the story where she orders the people who work for her to still the speech of birds so that this child is completely surrendered and surrounded by this mother and what and the mother's grief and the mother's longing for herself but against all her expressed wishes there's a group of knights riding through the forest and Percival hears them and of course he wakes up to his nature this is what I want to do so he doesn't know who he is she realizes she has to let him go but she clothes him in shabby clothes and bad information and sends him off to find out who he is. So he encounters the women who tell him what his name is. He encounters the Red Knight whom he accidentally defeats and earns a reputation as a fierce warrior and takes up the horse and the armor and the sword of this fierce Red Knight whom he has defeated. He has an opportunity to be on a journey in which he meets Amfortas, the wounded fisher king in the Grail Castle. And in the middle of an enormous feast and all this opportunity, he fails to ask the most important question of his life. I'll come back to what that question is. Because of his mother's advice and because of the, his old mentor, Gurnamans, who has said, don't show any curiosity and don't ask questions. And when he fails to ask the question that will heal things, the feast goes away, the castle goes away, he finds himself back in a quotidian, ordinary life as the, as the inheritor of the Red Knight's masculinity, joins Arthur's round table and becomes brothers with Sir Gawain, 
and is living this masculine glory life with the Knights of the Round Table when Kundri, the sorceress, the hag of the forest, rides in to the middle of this huge banquet and looks at him and says, this is false. You're not a hero. You had a chance to save the king and the kingdom, and you couldn't even open your mouth and show compassion for his situation. And furthermore, you have a black brother. You have a Saracen brother far away from here who wants and needs your help, and you need to reunite with him. And Percival is covered in shame and crawls out of the court and begins to wander for years. And in his wandering, finally meets an old hermit. And I think about the anchorite and meeting, I think about Jung, all of Jung's encounters, the red one, the red knight, the anchorite, that in this process of self-discovery, there are, there are places we'll encounter that we both are exalted and elevated and distinct, and we're the hero, and then we're the goat, and we're, we're deep into what didn't get done in that part of the journey. So he spends many, many years in solitude, and then Kundri, who has had her eye on him, this old hag of the forest, rides up to him again and says, I think you can try again now. And he goes and finds the Grail Castle again. After many, he's an old man now. And confronts the dying king, the bleeding spear, the country in disarray because the king is wounded because he's out of relationship, not only with the people, but with the land itself. He's been taking from it, not living with it. And Parsifal looks at him and says, uncle, what ails you? And this simple act of compassion of the recognition of someone else's suffering revives the dying king and revives the land and Parsifal is able to go home to his woman. He's able to find his brother, Fir Fiz, you know, which is um, the, his dark brother. They both meet the women in their lives. And it's not a Disney happily ever after. But this whole idea of a singular act of compassion that unites you with suffering is what changes the complexion of the story. And I'm very struck by, on page 371, precisely because of my smallness, I can be conscious of the nearness of the great. Mm -hmm. And it's the, this small thing in Parsifal's journey, after encounters with women, after seductions, after victories, after losses, after shame, after solitude, after failure, to come back to this simple thing, restores him, not only restores the king, who is then able to die so that Parsifal can step into the responsibility from a more humble point of view, but restores people to each other. And it's so amazing to me to find this powerful story buried in Klingsor's magical garden in the incubation dream in the cook's kitchen of the library, you know, because it's, it's like fractals, you know, or like the, the Kabbalah tree of life of, of the spiritual and the material constantly reflecting and informing and nourishing and making each other grow. 
Now, I think that's the fractals quality of all of this is very strong to me as well, because we could take any of these tiny, tiny pieces and open up an entire universe, um, right? Yeah. And so I'm struck by so many things you just expressed um, around how much I wish and long for between the number of battles that are happening on our streets, just this one thing now, how much toxic masculinity is involved in all of it, how much white supremacy is involved in all of it, and how much I think all of us, most of us know that the battles aren't going to get us where we need to be going. And that there needs to be dialogue and there needs to be compassion and not just compassion, you know, compassion on every side, but also the capacity for people to reflect on their own wounds. You know, because I think often, even if we offer compassion, there isn't a reflection that, yes, I am wounded and I'm acting out of my wound. So here we have a young masculine figure asking an older masculine figure who's sucking up the land, who is destroying everything because he's out of the Tao, right? And how do we bring the king back into the Tao and allow the king to dissolve into the earth to pass and, and a new generation, a, a regeneration to occur? It's compassion, dialogue, and relationship. But it's also in some respect, I would imagine, I mean, just an, a capacity to also be self-reflective. Yes, I am wounded. That, yeah. that is what's going on here. I, it makes me think, and you know, just there's another whole section here on 366 of the necessity of being able to accept mockery and to know, essentially to know one's own wounds, right? He says, all the world sees his error and he becomes the victim of its mockery. Then he says that others mock him. Well, it is only the disregard of his other that makes him ridiculous. I think we all can imagine who comes to mind around this quality of a man who is mocked by everyone but won't accept his own mockery and won't accept what needs to be accepted within himself. And because he can't lay down his ego to be reworked, it just keeps building and building and building on itself. So the wounded king who can't acknowledge his own wound and, and yeah. what that then does to an entire world or nation. I think there's sort of maybe we were going to explore this idea of the dark brother because this quality then as well of the chthonic, the sensate in Western culture, I, in my experience, in people of all races, the figures of dark figures in dreams or black African figures in dreams are often speaking to a kind of chthonic or sensate or earth related quality. And so you feel Jung here trying to get related again to an embodied earth-related, mater-related quality. And it may be a piece that he doesn't quite get to, as we've explored in the work, where it kind of, the way that it extends, but then shrinks back a bit. Carol, there's so much more here. What we're, we're going to talk to Anne about Nietzsche and more about Thus Spake Zarathustra, but do, what else do you want to say before we pivot? What else is there? Here. I think for me, the, uh, um, because I have been, since I've read this chapter, I, I went back to the Parsifal story. The mother is in deep grief. And because she's in deep grief, she cannot allow anyone to feel. And she forecloses feeling and deliberately gives him bad information. And, uh, you know, other people have talked about her saloida, her grief, the death, de the death dealing aspect of loss and grief and the, a failure to recover from it and how it touches everything around it, in this case, her son. 
but that even in spite of and in the face of that, he's called to his own life. He overhears the nights in the wood and he knows this is something that he has to do. So I think about how long it took him to learn how to feel. And, and I think it's why, again, it's why it's interesting that it's this myth and not another myth that is invoked in the magical garden. Uh, in Wagner's version, Kundri is an enchantress and a seductress that Percival blesses with the sword. That isn't who Kundri is. Kundri is a powerful primordial feminine force of fury and clarity and, and potency. And so it takes, there's both the inhibited frozen feminine of lost in grief and sorrow, the environment in which he's raised, when which he even is cut off from nature. But it's nature that restores him because Kundri is a nature figure. She's on a horse. She's got, you know, fire breathing out of her nostril. She's, you know, she, she's the hag of the woods. And so that idea of coming back and, and, and there's this point in the story where he, he can't even ride the horse. The, ho the horse is taking him where he needs to go. So he's in a process of his emotional, physical, psychic soul life is slowly being restored to him until at the end, it is the reanimation of that life that makes it possible for him to have compassion, to f actually feel somebody else's suffering. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, to the point of not just the black brother, not just the black other, but to, to actually be able to let it all in, to actually feel something, and that through that reciprocity with essentially the man who is an uncle, to begin to restore everybody to the process of the natural world. Yeah, and the capacity, when you say he could actually feel him, right? We need bodies, and we need to be connected yeah. to the earth, and we need sensate functions to feel. We don't yeah. do that conceptually, we don't do that in the air, and we don't do that with our minds or ideas right we have to be connected deeply and so the embodiment just the profound when we're talking about the connection between the conscious and the unconscious we're talking about also the deep connection to embodiment and somatics we've spoken of this in previous sessions but it stands out again it's more veiled in a way but it really comes through in this chapter it struck me this reading in a way it hadn't before well and the other part of it to your point about the vagus nerve you know, and about swallowing the sun, eating the sun, eating life, eating, eating dynamic, vibrant, burning life. The vagus nerve, uh, I'm, I met uh, at some point in my life a lot of nurses who were um, doing what's called kangarooing work, which is that in neonatal wards and natal wards, birth wards, that's very important for the infant to lie on the vagus nerve. It's part of what nursing is about is because the brain gut heart connection that comes when a mother is nursing is what helps the child connect that in, in itself in himself or herself. So that idea of a mother being cut off from her ability to nourish and the consequences that it has for the child are profound in terms of, of, uh, of eating, integration, and, uh, and uh, capacity for empathy and connection. Right, which we now know, I mean, they're learning more and more that that's part of generational trauma, right? How trauma is passed down is, is if, a, if, a, if a mother or parent's vagus nerve is not in alignment or not healthy or not happy, that that then gets automatically 
uh, in that sensory way passed down to children. Anne, hi again. There. First of all, I would like to thank Carol for that beautiful rendering, heartful rendering of Parsifal. And I wanted to say, you know, what you and I were talking about, one of the aspects of being somebody more drawn to the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the times, this is a very, very difficult time both to grapple with the spirit of the times. You, you would like, like Lao Tzu, to say, would you bring my water buffalo? I'm, I'm riding away. I'm going, off, I'm going off to a mountain. But you can't do that when the police lean on the neck of George Floyd. I mean, that's the paradox. At the time, you would most like to call on the water buffalo to come get you. You can't because what the spirit of the times is asking for is the awakening of compassion. Right. There's really an incredible paradox in there. And, and I could hear that call, Carol, while you were talking about Parsifal. Yeah. I just wanted very briefly to say, well, I hope briefly to say about Nietzsche and Jung's close tie. But one thing I discovered that Nietzsche had been a professor at the school that Jung went to as a young man. Mm -hmm. And he was by then already mad and insane. And so at first Jung was very afraid to read his work for fear he too would go insane. I mean, that was, that was what Nietzsche was known for. But in rereading, because of this, I went back and got an English copy. I went and bought my own English copy of Thus Spake Zarathustra and read it in my own language, which is totally different and so much more powerful. And at this moment in time, Nietzsche feels like the hurricane going across Lake Charles. What he does is he just goes across Western culture and he, like a hurricane, everything is thrown up and out. Roofs are blown off, basements are uncovered, everything lies, just the detritus everywhere. And so he kind of left that wreckage for Jung, Thomas Mann, I can't tell you all the people, Yates, Heidegger, all of them to come in and pick up, pick up what pieces fit, what pieces didn't fit, but they're very, very close time-wise. So a lot of the pieces that Jung picks up will fit closely, like writing the the Red Book in a very, very similar way to Thus Spake Zarathustra. And of course, other ideas, he's going to find them much too extreme. So here's Zarathustra. He who would keep clean amongst men must know how to wash himself, even with dirty water. Here's Jung. I have been baptized with impure water for rebirth. I have bathed myself with dirt. Now, I am going to tell you a quick story here because I'd forgotten all about it. But when I went back, I was married to somebody in, in London. And so I would have to go back to Munich and I had a tiny infant son. So when I went back to do my orals and things like that, I would take my son Marcus with me, who was maybe a year and a half, two years old. And in Germany, every few blocks, they have these great big sand piles playgrounds, as it were, for little kids. So I would go there with Marcus with my oral notes, and mostly grandparents took their young infants there. But all the grandparents, all the people with their little kids had these things called Waschlappen, maybe somebody said, it's like a face cloth, and they would literally stand 
behind the child. And when they ate something, then they smeared on the, they walked from behind continually. And so they were really upset that I let Marcus just, you know, he dropped his carrot in the sand and he picked it up and he ate it. So, you know, so what? And once we went to a, um, they have these sort of swimming pools exactly like that. And there was a mud puddle. And speaking of dirt, and of course, Marcus loved the mud puddle and he was jumping up and down in the mud puddle. And some man came over, some German man came over to me, stood over me and berated me, shouted at me. What did I think I was doing? What, you know, letting my child be dirty like that and get in the dirt and jump. I mean, he was really shouting. So every, and of course, everybody else was nodding that, that he was right. And I'd forgotten that story until I read those two quotes. And I, I realized how powerful Nietzsche's need to break from that grip of that morality was. I mean, if I hadn't experienced it, I wouldn't have realized how tight it was, how throttling it was, how it needed to have a hurricane go over it. And when you watch what's happening from Nietzsche to Jung, the idea just sort of slight being taken on and then always slightly morphed, it's almost like you're watching a wind blowing through. The wind is not Nietzsche, it's not Jung. It's really an idea whose time has come. And you can watch this. If you don't watch it as two individuals, you can really see what's happening here as a tremendous shifting in consciousness, which is coming out of the need to so react to that strangling, yeah. strangling mor morality it was, truly. So that and was simply fear, the story I wanted to offer up. The yeah. fear of dirt, the fear of the dirt, the fear of matter comes through so profoundly. I mean, I got a visceral feeling of no wonder World War II, you know, yeah. Yeah. No wonder, not just because of the sense of stifling, but the projection of dirty. Yeah. Absolutely. So when you talk about this with the dark brother right. and the earth and so on and so on, right. We're, we're right there. But it was very, very real, very visceral. So yeah. I thought, hmm, I remember yeah. that and I thought yeah. I'd tell it. And, but, and what I love is what you just observed, that it's breath itself that moves it. You know, that it is that it wasn't that, yes, it was Nietzsche, yes, it was Jung, but it was breath, and that that's that's you know, Atma Victu eating the sun, it's breath, you know, the of, of the aliveness of it, which we the have to then we have to then write the breath of life, we have to then yeah. bring it back to Kundalini again and yoga yeah. and the, and the yeah. awakening of the serpent and the relationship of that to all of this, right? There's all the cultures interweave in how, yeah. how this is being expressed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Found. Thank you. I'm, I'm chewing on a number of things in the back here. Um, grateful to both of you. Let's open it up to question and answer now and see who, who might want to share some things. I'm just still chewing and too. I mean, the, your, your capacity to bring imagery to many words too. the, the idea of all these children playing in these sand piles made, made me think of the, the literalism of kindergarten. Right. I mean, like, oh, that's where that comes from. It's a bunch of children sitting around in, in piles of dirt all over Germany. Yeah. Growing out of growing out of dirt. Growing out of dirt. Yeah. Having their faces wiped. Yeah. 
I think it's also the times that we're in, you know, that I think about the, the ongoing squares of, of spring and winter that are with, that we're all in this, we're all in this incredible challenge between, from an astrological point of view, the, the vitality and the revolt and the optimism of Aries in contrast with the contraction and the, the maintenance of Capricorn and it's, I, I think everybody's feeling that very strongly. Thank you. We, we do, we have John here. Hi, John. Hi. I just wanted to ask Carol, or, or all of you really, uh, if there's a version of Parseval that is particularly apt to, uh, to what we're talking about. It's a huge myth, and it's woven from several different cultures, and so there are several different cultural expressions. You can read Wolfram von Eschenbach, and that is probably, um, it's certainly what Wagner went to, and, but Wagner extracted uh, particulars and particularized them in the same way that when Wagner wrote The Ring Cycle. He, he took the Nibelungen and took all of these Nordic and Saxon myths and took what he wanted and, and never mind that he made something sort of magnificent. It was, it was quite reductive in terms of what was actually there. Anyway, von Eschenbach is a really good one. Chrétien de Troyes has a really wonderful, uh, there are good translations of that that is more, it brings in the French and it also brings in the Saracen element. And then I forget the name of the Welsh version, but I really do like Martin Shaw's book, The Snowy Tower, Parsifal and the Wet Black Branch. Of, of all of the versions that I've read, it's the most linear, the most narrative, and then he has very digressive discussions that weave all kinds of things into it. But you definitely get all three versions of the story in the narrative part of the story that he gives. I will add too, I think we'd be remiss not to add that Jung did not dive very deeply into this myth in his lifetime and scholarship because Emma Jung, his wife, was spending an enormous amount of her own time exploring this. And so, but she didn't finish it before she passed. And so Marie-Louise von Franz finished her scholarship. So there's a book also, The Grail Legend by Emma Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz. I didn't know that. Yeah, Carol, we might, that might be a yeah. seminar coming up. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I, until we talked this morning, I didn't know that, uh, you know, I mean, he, Jung only makes a very small passing reference and a very limited reference to it, which surprised me because the myth itself is so powerful. And because Jung himself is on the journey, you know, he's, yeah. he's the young man who doesn't know who he is on the journey. So, so I would look forward to that. So my, my understanding is that he really held himself back out of deference to Emma because she was so deeply engaged with this myth and that when she passed away, he asked von Franz if she would finish the work. So, um, so it's, it's a very thick, I've actually got, I think three copies of it over on the end of my bookshelf. Um, it's, you know, it's a thick book and would be really fun for us to dive into at some point. So thanks for the question, John, because I had also wanted to, to bring that up. Um, okay. So we're going to say hi to Magda and then Jane. And I think that's, we'll end there. So we have two more questions. Hi, Magda. Hi. Oh, um, Anne, your, your Nietzsche quote and the comparison there was, that was so moving to me and spoke so much to sort of the experience of just being alive right now. 
And so I just, I was wondering if any of you would be willing to reflect on sort of, so what came to me was the experience of being someone who does really align with the spirit of the depths and feels very uncomfortable in the spirit of the times and the conflict that that brings up in a moment like this. And the experience of there being when lots of people are waking up to how things actually are right now, the water feels dirtier in the sense of like, everybody's everybody's shit is in the water right now in a way that it was like all packed down and tidy before. And what it's like to be sort of someone who is working with that energy in an individual way for ourselves in the collective, like that's what it, that's what the experience of knowing how to wash yourself with dirty water feels like. So I just wanted to see if, if anyone has any reflections on that. Beautiful. I think you said it all. It's not easy. Yeah, and I and Magda certainly astrologically, the transit of Uranus in Taurus, time for everybody to come back down to Earth, and that means here, not the shining city on the hill, not our abstractions, not what we wish. What's here? But also from a very practical level, I have to do things like say to my husband, who would love to discuss politics until midnight, I have to say the cutoff time is five o'clock because I need to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I really had to learn how much I can take in a day and still hold my center. Mm-hmm. And I think that's everybody individually has to find that place where you can hold a balance of the within and the without. His is different from mine. I have to find mine. Yeah. Yeah. I told somebody that um, I allow myself five minutes of Trump a week. And she said, oh, is that a homeopathic remedy? (laughs) 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 Yep. I think that how do we cleanse ourselves with dirt? You know, I, I don't even know what you said just reminds me of something that, that I experienced in this last few days that completely shocked me in a, diff- a variety of ways. But I was socializing with people who I didn't know for the first time in probably six months. And it was for a child's birthday party backyard thing and experienced anti-Semitism or a kind of it was a joke about Jews that came out sideways and was completely unintended and, and it, and it completely shocked me. And I continued playing nice and sort of making small talk, but I came home sobbing in a way that I have not sobbed for maybe a year, honestly. And I knew that it was a release of all sorts of other things, but I also knew that there was this quality And I was thinking of this as Anne was speaking about the dirt in Germany, inevitably, is again, where does the projection of that dirt go, you know, of the sort of quality of Jews being in that untouchable place. Um, I think of that relationship to to India's untouchables, that, that there were reverberations in what this person said, casually and sort of jokingly, that went back for thousands of years. And just like, but it, it's like when you speak of cleansing with dirt in that way, it was sort of a, a visceral reminder of, for myself, of what's going on with racism. It's like I had not in my own skin experienced the humiliation of racism in that way 
for a very long time and maybe in that way ever because it hit me. So what are, how we are all kind of cleansing of thousands of years of projection and division and pain and suffering right now. How do we connect the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths? That sobbing for me felt like a union of those two things that I, I couldn't do intellectually. And even as you're saying, I, I love this. And even as you're saying that, it then makes me think of what Carol said about metabolizing. Yeah, right. That we, like we're metabolizing all yes. of the shit that has floated to the surface. You know, like it's out now. Right. Yeah. Right. Or we're trying to, right? I mean, like <laughs> we're all saying we're trying to metabolize. And I know that that was part of it is I was just like, because I, I said, it, this is the, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, a few years ago, somebody would say that I would have been sort of shocked and I would have kind of rolled my eyes and forgotten it. But it was the straw for me. It was like, I cannot believe we are still doing this shit at a child's birthday party when people are getting shot in the street for their fucking skin color. For what? It's such insanity. The level of projection, the level of of absurdity of this stuff. If you look at it intellectually, it's killing somebody because they have a mole on their face. You know, it's like, we're talking about nothing. This is a color, right? Except that all these things, the size of, you know, people's physical features, the, the, you know, all of these things are just, they're just screens for projection and what that draws out in us. So, um, yes. It also just seems like we're only looking at the, like, this is the grossest level that we're looking at right now. And there's layers and layers and layers and layers of subtlety that like we still have yet to unearth. So like, I guess we ought to get like, we ought to really work on our digestion muscles. <laughs> and thank you, Anne and Carol and Satya for those Satya, can I Can I say one thing? I had sort of a parallel. It was probably both the same night, but I was brought up in a, we didn't have much money, but I was brought up in a very wasp New England family way back at, you know, I was born in 1938. And there was this myth about the Cabot and the Lodges in Maine at this time of the year is full of those kinds of lovely houses overlooking the shore where the Cabots and the Lodges and the Salton's own, all those people had a view of the ocean open, of the open ocean. And, and nobody else, of course, could really go on it. So Chick and I took a picnic lunch and we happened to go down and we were sitting in front of one of those great big houses. And suddenly it rushed over me from my childhood, a feeling of, oh, that would be lovely. In other words, the dream that had been installed in me as a child suddenly came up. Everything in my life has been resisting that. I'm not that. I don't want it. It has racism in it. It has anti-Semitism in it. Everything in my life has said, I won't be that and I'm not that. And suddenly I had to look at something coming up just by the view of a house, but coming up so deeply from a level that I had not allowed myself to see. For me, one of the most difficult parts of what we're going through is being able to become aware of parts of myself that I absolutely did not think could be there, would be there, that I was even capable of. I was ashamed. I was ashamed to tell my husband he was hurt. I mean, I had to work through a lot of stuff just to be able to see that little tiny awareness of what had been fed into me as a child. Right. 
Well, and it, it's interesting you say that, Anne, because for me, I could see this person's childhood right there. You know, I knew she came from a completely different background than I, you know, and yet I didn't care anymore. Right. I mean, it's just the exhaustion of it all. But yeah. also, Carol, it makes me think of just you. You started by sneezing when we got on early together and just spoke of you. You know, you said, I realize I've been sensitive this whole time and I've just always plowed through it. And, and that's also I thought back to my own experience with this encounter of owning my sensitivity and honoring that actually we all need to be more sensitive. That's the whole thing. It makes me think again of Parsifal. We all need to be more sensitive. The shoving that down is what's made our world sick. It's like my dream that I told you about, Satya. I told Satya about a dream I had. I'm driving, I'm with my family. We're driving a garbage truck out of a huge warehouse full of garbage and a voice yells into the void, nothing here but exhausted masculinity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's like that woke me up kept me awake for a while <laughs> you know my my dream what's in my you know what what is going on in my psyche well and also what you're I mean yes and I would say what also what you're picking yeah. up on I mean you were in a yeah. city filled with exhausted masculinity last night yeah. Yeah. the gills right so all right thank you Magda for that thank you deep exploration um hi Jane Hi. Hello. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, early as, and, and repeatedly as we talked about Parsifal, the idea of um, we're all out of relationship to the land and the king is out of relationship to the land of the people. And I kept hearing the Joni Mitchell song, We've Got to Get Ourselves Back to the Garden. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, combine that with the reality of where we are, we're swimming in shit. And we're dealing with all these negatives, but at the same time to be able to try to, to find that empathy within us, mm-hmm. because what I have a really hard time finding empathy for are the people who are Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. You know, my mind, my whole soul wants to just put them as stupid and evil and this and that. And I know some people who are incredibly intelligent very um, worldly and still have this connection to Trump. And so I'm trying to figure out what to do with that. And I think the idea of keeping the garden in my mind helps me. Something about them I need to learn about me to get me back to the garden. If I can focus on that and find my empathy for, for both sides this damn duality, then, you know, maybe that will help us get there. But I I tell you, Joni Mitchell's just playing in my head. (laughs) She's always been my go-to when I can't take it anymore. She's such a goddess. Mm -hmm. She really is. What an amazing poet. Mm -hmm. But, and talk about someone who really exposes masculine power and abuse in a lot of her songs. You know, just in terms of her relationships, but anyway, I just had one. What you're saying, Jane? What her her song of you know putting the trees in the tree museum, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's our work. I mean, what you just the question you raised and the answer that you gave—that's the medicine. Well, you guys raise a lot of questions for me every week, so it's good. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for being here, Jane. It's I think this is one of the hardest questions, you know. I mean, um 
but it is, where is the wound? To me, that's really what came up when Carol expressed that is where is the wound? It's less compassion for the hatred than what's underneath the hatred. You know, there's an extraordinary Baldwin quote. I'm not going to say it exactly, but you know, he says, I think the reason that, that people cling on to hate so much is if you take the hate away, you have to face the suffering that's underneath. Mm. And and that that's it. That's the core. Again, that's the depth psychology of James Baldwin. It's the core to why is hate such a comfortable shield? What's going on underneath? So thank you all. Love you so much. Bye-bye. For more, please visit salameinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team, to Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights, to our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast, to Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes, to Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music, and to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.